0: Sometimes, the best stories in golf aren't found on tour. You'll find them at the Back of the Range. And here's your host, Ben Adelberg. Welcome to the Back of the Range Golf Podcast. I am your host, Ben Adelberg. This is episode 118. If this is your first time tuning into the Back of the Range, welcome. Hope you enjoyed this episode and many more to come. And for those of you that have been here since the early episodes, thanks so much for tuning in each and every week, and I'm glad to share this special episode with you today. You know, when I started the Back the Range Golf podcast back in January of 2018, and you know, actually even months before that, I had a few people give me the needle and say, well, what are you going to talk about? And, and, and they'd ask me who I'd have as guests. Well, I'd always hear things like, well, you, are, are you going to have Tiger on the podcast? And, and what about Jack Nicklaus? Well, that got me thinking, what if the opportunity actually presented itself that I could speak with Jack Nicklaus? What would I ask him? What would you ask him? What hasn't he been asked in his nearly 60 years in the world of professional golf? So I started a folder labeled it Nicklaus on my computer. Anytime I had a thought or a question, I would you know throw it in there for safekeeping and I'd make some edits here and there just in case. That day came around that I would actually get to spend some time with Mr. Nicholas. Well, that day ended up being Wednesday, February 5th, 2020. Before we get to the episode, for those of you that might be new here, I release episodes each and every week, and it's all about the guests. I tend to focus on collegiate players like Cole Hammer and John Pock, mid amps and senior amps like Stuart Hagestad and Mike McCoy that have won USGA titles and represented their country at the Walker Cup. You'll also get to hear from PGA Tour pros like Scott Stallings, commentators like Dottie Pepper and Joe Buck. But the main focus here is to tell stories from the world of golf that you might not get from the mainstream media. So thanks to a relationship within the Nicholas family, I was able to secure some time at Jack's house for an interview. We actually recorded the episode in his office, where I got to take a look at the most famous trophies in the game. Yes, he has replicas of all four major championship trophies and a U.S. Amateur Trophy for good measure. When the interview was arranged, I was told I'd have 30 minutes. I ended up getting an hour. Jack was incredibly gracious, engaging, and thoughtful. Let's not forget the fact that he's 80 years old, and his memory is absolutely incredible. He was rattling off names of his 1961 Walker Cup teammates and the semi-finalists in the 61 USM, like they just played a club championship together last week. Now, we didn't talk about the 86 Masters, and we didn't talk about Tiger Woods. That's all out there on YouTube. You can find that pretty much anywhere. I tried my best to get some unique stories and thoughts from my childhood golf hero. So I know that you'll have some comments like, ah, why didn't he ask him this, and why didn't he talk about that? Well, maybe next time. You never know. But still, send me your comments and let me know what you think about my conversation with Mr. Nicholas. Now, before we get started, I have to share this quick story about what occurred before we hit the record button, something that I will absolutely never forget. So a little background, my father passed away in 2008. In fact, he passed away on the day of the tiger Rocco Mediate U.S. Open playoff at Torrey Pines. Now, he didn't play golf, But he was a big fan of my golf aspirations, and we'd watch golf on TV together all the time. Well, on the ride up to see Jack, I couldn't help but think about how amazed he would have been that I was getting the chance to sit and speak with Jack Nicholas. His name was Ira, by the way. Well, before the episode, before we're ready to go in to record in his office, we're in the Nicholas kitchen, and I can't remember exactly who said it, but I do remember someone posing the question something like, Hey, are we still on with Ira later, or are we still going to see Ira? As you can imagine, I about froze my tracks, and at that time I knew that it was going to be a pretty good day. So, this episode is dedicated to my dad. Thanks for letting me share that story. Let's get started with this week's episode with the 18-time major championship winner, Jack Nicklaus. Jack, you're at the back of the range. How are you?
1: I'm good, man. Thank you.
0: We're we're just like a few steps away from the Nicholas kitchen. You just did a interview for your foundation and I don't want to get us in trouble right off the bat, but your wife and your daughter did this great cookbook about three, four years ago, benefiting the foundation. What's your favorite dish in that book? Is that going to get us in trouble right off the bat?
1: No, that won't get you in trouble. <laughs> I, think it's, uh, I don't know whether there is a favorite dish in that book because every page is a good dish. Uh, the recipes that uh, Barbara and Nan have collected through the years, and uh, Barbara kept threatening to do a cookbook. And uh, after about twenty years of it, they actually did it. Okay. And uh, then they came in. And they were trying to figure out uh, a name for it. And I was out playing tennis one day, and I came in, and they had been in there for about an hour and a half, going through all kinds of things. And and Barbara said to me, she says, Jack what do you say to some somebody uh if uh, uh you know they 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 just beat you or something I' just well done she says oh it's, it's right there there it is there's my name and so well done became her book and uh she's done very well with it they haven't really I don't think they've tried to sell it uh a tremendous amount of books but they've uh, they've done nicely with it and it's a really good book and it's got some great recipes in it. I don't know. Uh, I assume my her veal Parmesan or uh, her uh, Italian cream cake or her uh, red velvet cake or uh, Chinese cabbage <laughs> uh, salad or, uh, you know, I mean, you start keep start going through them. And I just keep I just keep going, going, going for different dishes. I mean, she's she's got a uh, I don't know what chicken Florentine, I think, in there, which is chicken i think with broccoli and uh
0: it's almost time really for lunch yeah i mean uh, we're we're getting i
1: mean she's got she's got a, i don't even, i don't know what the recipes are but the uh, uh you know I've, I've certainly eaten them all that's for sure
0: <laughs> well when i um when i first started this podcast uh about two years ago i started with really great mid amateurs and senior amateurs from around florida many of them you know uh, you know steve anderson and, and uh, mike weeks and people like that and Not a lot of them were household names. So, a lot of the beginnings of the episodes were me introducing them to the listeners, talking about their start in the game. I think that's been covered uh, with you for in many different facets. So, I was hoping we can maybe skip past a couple of those things. But I I wanted to ask for me and also for listeners you started every season with Jack Rout with a lesson or a, a, a lesson based on fundamentals. Can you kind of explain to me and listeners, the importance of fundamentals and maybe how an amateur can put that into their game, how they start their golf season.
1: Well, when Jack Grout uh, first started me, I was 10 years old. And one of the first things he did was teach me how to proper footwork. And uh, for the first year, he did not allow me to let my heels leave the ground. I rolled my left ankle in on the backswing and I rolled my right ankle in on on the downswing. And what that did to did for me, uh, since I couldn't come around on it, it forced me to release the club, at the ball. So there was more than one, and it allowed me it forced me to try to keep my head in position. It was an old uh, Alex Morrison uh, thing, and Jack grew up with with Henry Pickard, and uh, uh, so I started that way. And uh, then uh, after about uh, two or three weeks of lessons, Jack would. Uh, uh, get me, call me out in front of the class. He said, Jackie Buck, he says, come out here and show these kids how to hit a high shot. Show these kids how to take a proper divot. Show these kids how to hit hit this, hit that, whatever it might be. And, you know, he sort of used me as an example of what to do. And of course that instilled confidence in me. And uh, Jack Grout became like a, a second father to me. And he was, he was a wonderful man and very low key but it, but it was all about fundamentals a proper grip proper head position proper leg motion how to use your legs how to uh, how, how, how to be on balance uh, all those things were part of what Jay Grout did to to, to, to get me started and then I, I just used that as my uh, basis and background for how I uh, just uh, you know just added onto it as time went on
0: you you turn pro um you know, by all accounts, your amateur record, if there was a list of the can't-miss prospects, you had to have been at the top of that list. You know, two-time U.S. Amateur, two-time Walker Cup, NCAA uh, individual at Ohio State, all these accomplishments. But, you know, professional golf was just starting to become a viable financial option. And I looked it up. You know, the, the median salary of a pharmacist in 1961 is $8,000. Uh, insurance renewals were between 10 and $15,000 a year. And while you have this great amateur record and it looks like a no brainer to go the professional ranks, can you talk about maybe just the, the unknown of turning professional at that
1: time? I started selling insurance. My father got me out of pharmacy. I was went through pre-pharmacy at Ohio state. He talked me out of going into pharmacy school and said, you can't use your golf behind a counter. And he said, uh, uh, so, so we got involved. I got involved with with Fred Jones, the Ohio State Life Insurance Company. Fred did the golf club in Columbus.
0: Okay.
1: And uh so Fred gave me an opportunity and I became the, the youngest licensed insurance uh, person in the state of Ohio ever. I got licensed on my 20th birthday. He mm-hmm. had to be twenty one. They, they 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 gave me an exemption to do that. Well, anyway, uh I started selling life insurance and and I, you know, and I and I and I used my golf a little bit because I did some other things where I would go to a golf amateur golf tournament and I would maybe see some clients or maybe do some work for a slack company, which I did. So so when when they rolled around to nineteen fall of nineteen sixty one, I just won the national amateur again and uh it was not about it was not about money because I was making Around thirty thousand dollars a year. Sure, and thirty thousand dollars a year in nineteen sixty-one was a lot of money, particularly for a twenty-one-year-old kid. And uh, so, you know, and, and my expectations—my first year on tours—if I made thirty thousand, I'd be doing pretty well. And so this is, you know, so I once I turned pro, I didn't give up my day job either.
0: Okay, <laughs> yeah, right. I know you. Did. I know you didn't. You're, you're balancing. Yeah, I did that. Yeah.
1: And so anyway. Uh, uh, I did that, and uh, but but I didn't turn pro because of money. Right, I turned pro because I was trying to finish up college. I was trying to. Uh, uh, I was married. We had a child, uh, Jackie, and uh, I was trying to be the best golfer I could be. And I wasn't doing any of them to the best of my ability. Sure, I wasn't selling insurance the best of my ability. So anyway, I had to f- figure out what could I do, and and, and I really my goal. Turned out to be that I wanted to be the best I could be at playing golf, so the only way I could do that is to play against the best, and that was to be a pro. So I decided to go ahead and do that in that November of nineteen sixty-one, and I said, "Well, okay, if I can exceed what I'm doing selling insurance, then I do it very well, I remember I did my first year out on tour. I was after about the first or second week, I did an interview with a a reporter, and he wrote in the thing that he says." That you know, I told myself. I thought I made thirty thousand that year. I'd have a successful year, and I mean the the older guys. The next week, I was at Pebble Beach. I was from San Diego the week before. At Pebble Beach, they said, "Look at this cocky kid. Right, thinks he can come out here and just walk over <laughs> us and make thirty thousand dollars a year." I'm sitting there, and said, well, "I didn't think that was all that big of a big of a stretch." Well, anyway, make a long story short, I uh, I made sixty. One thousand or something in official money, or sixty-two something like something like that. Won the World Series of Golf, which was another fifty, and I played in Australia, won some money down there. So I probably made I don't know one hundred twenty thousand dollars or so playing golf. Plus, I had some other contracts. So, so from a financial standpoint, it was a it was very good for me. Right, and. Uh, and then I still sold my insurance, you know, that, but I didn't sell much of it. I formed an agency with a friend of mine, Bob Hoag, and we started business through that. And, um, anyway, I was off and running, playing golf. And that was what I wanted to do.
0: Yeah. Before you turn professional, um, you know, I had the chance I was at uh, Royal Liverpool last year for the Walker cup. And I know you played in two of them, 59, 61, Sir at Muirfield and I think it was Seattle golf club. And, um, I think in large part today's collegiate stars, they face a really tough decision. Do they maybe forgo some opportunities to turn pro early and get guaranteed spots or do they stay an amateur and try and compete for that, for that spot on the Walker cup team? I'm just curious. There's a lot of collegiate players, a lot of uh, parents that have collegiate players, uh, you know, competing right now. How important was Walker cup to you and how it's kind of set you up?
1: I mean, I I'd won uh, I won the transmiss to get on the Walker cup team. And then I've won uh, a couple of national amateurs and i won almost won the U S open. And so, you know, from a golf standpoint, almost two two U S opens, actually from a golf stand, I, standpoint, I'd, I'd pretty much done what I had to do. Sure. But, but representing your country, right. Playing in the Walker cup, uh, the camaraderie that, and the friends that I've made for life, uh, on both sides of the pond, was something that I wouldn't, I, I treasured, I still treasure it today. It was, Walker Cup was wonderful.
0: Who do you still keep in touch with? Uh, from- oh, well,
1: I, mean, I, I mean, I played, let's see, we had Dean Beeman, Ward Wetlaufer, who just passed this last year, and Tommy Aaron. Uh, uh, let's see, her four youngest Tommy, Ward, Dean, and myself. Yeah, four of yeah. us, four kids. And then, of course, uh, uh, I kept in touch a lot with Harvey Ward and with, uh, Billy Joe Patton and with uh, uh, Charlie Coe and Bill Hindman and uh, all those guys that were on that team. I I, I, I kept in touch and we talked about a lot lot of things, but anyway, uh, and then of course on the other side of the pond, you know, I had a lifetime played Joe Carr and ended up having a lifetime relationship with Joe Carr. He was a wonderful guy. And, we just, uh, you know, we just had a, We had a blast playing golf together. So the Walker Cup was a very, very special time for me. And then when, after we played in Seattle, I played Joe Carr in Seattle and beat him in, Se- in Seattle. The locker, we went down and, and went to Pebble Beach. And we played several practice rounds together, and we both got to the semifinals of the U.S. Amateur. And he was playing Dudley Wise Song and I was playing Sonny Methvin, and. I think Joe looked past why to play me in the finals and Dudley ended up beating. Yeah. But you know, here, here's a guy who was, I guess probably, I think he probably won five British amateurs or something like that. We almost had the opportunity to, two two guys that become competitors and friends to do that. Walker cup was, was because of the Walker cup. It was yeah. fantastic.
0: Yeah. You're one of the most successful golfers in the history of the game. Um, you know, your successes are well chronicled, but, um, I kind of want to go in a different direction. Our society today, we're, we seem to be measured by the the speed of our successes. How quickly can you be a success? And um, I'm just curious, can you share some thoughts on the importance of failure and how important it shaped your career, whether on the course or off the course?
1: Well, I've got a lot of young kids that come to me now, a lot of the young pros. Yeah. And, you know, it's very flattering that they would be interested in so 70-something and now 80 Year old fellow for, for some advice I mean I'm sure that they, they, they don't listen to their fathers that's what <laughs> most most kids do you know kids just don't listen to your father but anyway uh I'm very flattered by that but I but my my message to a large degree is uh you know understand who you are understand what you can do understand what your abilities are and be patient and uh i I use the story with Rory uh, which is a uh, Roy was 19 years old when he was playing it out here at the Honda tournament. And he was going to have lunch with one of the gurus of uh, site gurus. And, and a friend of mine said to, he says, why in the world would you do that? You got, you got Jack right across the street. Go yeah. see, go see. Me. So Roy called me and we sat down for lunch and Roy, Roy was having trouble finishing golf tournaments. And he'd, uh, and he hadn't, he hadn't won in a year. And I mean, it's only 19 years. Yeah. Ago. And so uh, I said to him, I said, Roy, I said, uh, you know, you really, uh, you got to understand why you've made those mistakes. Why haven't you won? It's first of all, you got to learn that. And and so you got to learn to play and stay within that. Somebody may beat you by playing within that, but that's what you need to do. And plus you need to just be patient. I remember Joe Black who ran the tour back in, in the early sixties and Joe uh, I was frustrated, uh, my first year on tour, I'd finished second at Phoenix. I finished second and lost the playoff in Houston. I finished second at the Thunderbird and going into the U S open. And I'd had several thirds in force. So I was, you know, I was knocking on the door and I was getting a little frustrated before sure. I won it, uh, at, at, at Oakmont. And so I told Roy, I said, but Roy and Joe Black told me, he said, he said, Jack, he says, one of these days, says, be patient. Going out and playing that last nine holes, you'll just shoot 33 or 32 rather than shooting 35 or 36, and you'll win the tournament. I said, okay. And so, you know, and, and, and I just sort of kept my patience and, and kept playing, and finally I, I won the U.S. Open. Not, not, it was only my 17th tournament on tour, but still it's still I felt finally. right. And so I passed this on to Rory. And I passed on and said, you know, just be patient with you. Don't try to push yourself. I said, you might, you know, sometime along the way, maybe uh, somebody else, you know, somebody else might shoot that 36 or seven or 38. And you might just shoot 33 and, and win the golf tournament. That's all there is to it. Right. Just be patient. So so a couple, three, about three or four weeks later, he went up to Charlotte and he's playing at Charlotte. And, and all of a sudden he shot 63 in the last round. And I think he won by, I don't know, five or six, seven yeah, shots, something that like that. Long
0: birdie putt in the last, yeah.
1: And so uh, uh I dropped him a note and I said, you know, I said, you know, I told you to be patient, but this is ridiculous. <laughs> I said, nice going in your win. So that that went on and then about, uh oh, I don't know, a year or two later, he shot 80 the last round of the Masters. It had It was leading the tournament and he came to me a couple weeks after that, the Memorial Tournament and he said, uh, I saw him and I said, I said, sorry about Augusta. He said, yeah, I, says, I, 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 I said, well, I said, let's, let, let's figure this, right. Did you learn anything? Did you learn why you lost? He says, I think so. I said, well, mem- remember what you did because you're getting ready to go play in the U.S. Open. And just, you know, you understood what you did. To, don't try to ever repeat your mistakes because I think you don't repeat your mistakes, then you jealous people have some success. Well, he went the next week, a couple weeks later and won the U.S. Open at, at uh, it
0: Congressional. At
1: congressional. It? He won by, I don't know, a lot of strokes, seven, or eight, nine strokes, whatever it was. And so I dropped him a note and I said, well, you know, I said, you obviously learned something from Augusta, but even more important than that, what did you learn from your win at at congressional, I said, you learned why you lost. Did you learn why you won? And what's your attitude, what you did to how you played. In other words, that, to me, and, he, and and you know, uh, that, that's all part of learning how to play. You learn why you lose. You learn how not to lose. You learn how to put yourself in a position to win. You learn why you win. You learn how to, winning breeds winning. You learn how to, how to, how, how in your own mind and everybody's different. And everybody will turn out to do it a different way, and but but you've got to do it what's right for you, and so uh, you know, I think that was just one example of that. I was very proud that uh, I was able to help Roy a little bit, and, and I don't think I helped him with his golf game. I don't think we ever even talked about a golf shot, uh, but we talked about attitude and and patience and. And uh, the feeling of winning, the feeling of why you lost, and all those things put them together, and that, that's how you develop it and become a package of a golfer. And I've had some of the other young guys have come to me, and uh, I felt very proud that I've been able to help, help them, help somewhat, I think, in uh, in their quest to become a, you know, a winning player on the on the PGA tour. And uh, uh, I'm very, I'm proud of that. Yeah.
0: So I, I have a. I have a Jack story. So in, in 2012, I qualified for the U.S. mid Amateur at Quail Ridge down in Boynton Beach and, you know, it rained the whole day and I was fortunate enough to get in and, and your son Gary qualified at the same site on the same day. So I'm on cloud nine and you know, I'm going to Conway Farms and this is great. And I'm walking out to the parking lot and all of a sudden from behind me, I hear Mr. Adelberg and it's Gary having fun. He's like, hey, we got to set up a practice round and And you're with him and you shake my hand. Congrats on getting in. And off you go into your car. He's like, thanks, dad. Thanks for coming out. And I'm just like, okay, I just got into my first USGA tournament. And then I just saw that happen. I said, that's a a hell of a day. And, And, you know, I've shared that story several times with a lot of people. And the reason I'm bringing it up now is you've had to handle that probably almost your entire life where every just casual interaction with anyone can turn into their Jack Nicklaus story. And no matter how random it is, and I'm just curious, how aware you are of that? Is that something you've had to learn how to? And I obviously you want to treat everyone the way you want to be treated, and just you know. But I'm just curious. That has to be just a very unique thing where everywhere you go, you're potentially giving someone their Jack Nicholas story.
1: Well, you know, I of I don't I don't look at it that way. I, I mean, I I'm just trying to be a, a dad for, for sure. Gary and trying to. Uh, congratulate a fellow player who qualified. Uh, it's not a – I try not to make a big deal out of it one way or the other. Sure. And uh, hopefully, uh, uh, you know, I don't want them to make a big deal. Now, they may be excited that maybe they met some guy who was some decent player. and. and <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> but anyway, you know, that, that may be something. But, you know, I don't really try to make a big deal out of it. Sure. I try to sure. want to make them comfortable and be part of what, just part of what, the, whatever, whatever's going on.
0: Sure. Um, I want to ask you a little bit about, uh, about 1980. You know, you, you, I, when I was at that U.S. Mid-Am, I played my practice with Gary and Steve Anderson and, and I just couldn't do anything around the green. So I was just having a terrible time. Wasn't used to the grass up there at, uh, at Conway Farms and, and they're helping me out in my short game. And I'm wondering if you could share a little bit about what Phil Rogers did for your short game in 1980. And that, okay. how that kind of moved things in a different direction. Well,
1: 1979 was worst year I had on tour. I Didn't okay. win a tournament. Actually, I looked back, I came close to two or three of the majors, and I finished a second and a fourth, and I don't know what the other one was. And uh, uh, but I was getting so bad at chipping that I was I was putting it around bunkers half the time if I had a tight lie. Okay. And I'm sitting there saying, "What, what am I doing this for?" So, Phil had been a longtime friend, and uh, uh, I knew that his short game was really good. And uh, So, I just gave him a call. I said, Philly, I said I need some help. And he said, What do you need? I said, Well, I said, I, I said I'm darn near putting it around bunkers. I said, I'm just terrible. Sure. So, we went, to, went out to Riviera, and Phil and I went out, down out in uh, some, some green out there, champion green, and we started filling around. And he started working with his figure eight. Little chipping swing, and we start so he worked with me, and we spent a lot of time. But just explained, he explained his theory of how he chipped and what he went, went on to do it. And of course, we chipped using the the, the flange of the club rather than any using any of the leading edge, and making sure that we returned the club to its address position uh, uh, at impact, uh, so that you never get your leading edge in the ground and things that it would. That you flinched on, uh, sure. Because because you know, you're, you're trying to make a chip shot. And all of a sudden you got your lead edge in the ground. And the ball goes goes two feet. You sit there, you look up, and I don't care whether you're by yourself or you got ten thousand people. You're still embarrassed. And so, uh, we worked on we worked on those things, and uh, it got so that uh, I got decent at it. I didn't I didn't I didn't win any for a while, and we got to the uh, matter of fact I missed the cut at, at Atlanta. Two weeks before the U.S. Open at Baldy's and so uh, I was at Baldy's Roll, I'm working on my short game, and uh, we had, uh, and I and I used to, I used it. That was it was okay, and I'll never forget coming in. I played with Aoki all four rounds, and the last hole, I, I Roll, I had a two shot lead, and I laid my laid my second shot up, and left myself with sixty six yards, and over a bunker to a tight pin and I sit there and say, okay, <laughs> Mr. Rogers, if this is going to work, it's going to work now. Of course, that I, sound I, mean, fun. I, I, I played the shot, this little figure eight, I played it and just hit it perfect and hit it in about four or five feet. And I've just said oh, was that was that was that a good shot. And yeah, I, you know, I really enjoy I really enjoy that. And, uh, you know, uh, so I I, I, help, I, get, I get Fell a lot of credit for giving me the the help that I needed. And, uh, it certainly added a lot of confidence to me. And I continued to, you know, to continue to play well for quite a while after that with that, with that method. Yeah. I need to go back to that method. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's like, I need to go back to that method. Um, I- I'm just thinking here, you- you've probably found yourself in all sorts of rooms, uh, throughout your life and career, talking to great minds in medicine and business and, and just, educated people uh, in all walks of life, different athletes. And I'm sure when people see you, they want to talk golf. They want to talk about their game or ask you about your game. What are some of the conversations that you most enjoy finding yourself in?
1: Oh, I don't know. I I don't really talk a lot about golf.
0: Right. That's what I mean. Like what but, other but, but, but people come to me? Well, of course, of
1: course. And, oh, we talk. What are the things we talk about? Yeah, enjoy. I, well, we only talk about fishing. I always enjoy that. Talk about hunting. We talk. I enjoy that. Uh, you know, fishing. All I always do is fly fish. Okay, and all I do when I hunt is is bow. And uh, uh, I felt like uh, when we did that hunting, I started. The kids wanted to go hunting, and I would My dad introduced me to bird shooting when I was younger, and I started. So I was going to introduce my kids to bird shoot. They didn't want a bird shoot. None of them did. <laughs> And I'm sitting there, what do you want to do? And they said, we want to go shoot animals. I said, what? I said, I never shot an animal in my life. I didn't have no interest in shooting an animal. So I took, so we we drew as a family, went to Montana the first year we went. We went out and we had had rifles. And I looked at the rifles and I'm saying, no, 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 no. Anyway, so here we are in, in Montana. And we didn't shoot anything, but... I said that's killing. That's not hunting. Right. That's why I felt about it. So the next twelve years, we went to Montana. We drew as a family and got drawn. In a in a, in a I don't know why, what kind of blind draw they had, but we happened to get drawn. And in twelve years, we never let one arrow fly. Just. One never never got. We saw lots of animals. Saw animals that we could shoot with a rifle, they were dead. And we just, and I think the kids appreciated nature, Nature spending time out there as a family. And uh, if we got the opportunity, uh, you know, then we would, we would do something. We didn't do anything. And then finally I said, you know, I think they'd put in their dues. So I start going to, uh, took them down to Arizona and, and uh, New Mexico and went to some of the uh, the Indian reservations down there, which they do a great job of managing their game. And uh, uh so we the kids shot a few elk and some deer and and things like that, and, and they got interested and invited, and we've been doing it ever since. And uh and that's that, and then and then fishing, we used to like move to the Palm Beach area. A lot lot to do with because where the Gulf Stream comes in so close here, and and going out for sail fishing and that kind of stuff. And I get tired of dragging baits yeah. and, and, and having the boat catch the fish. And so finally I, I started, I started, and I'd fly fished as a kid, uh, traveled up in Ohio with a, my golf coach at Ohio State, Bob Kepler introduced me to fly fishing. Mm-hmm. And we used to, he used to look at me and say, he'd look up at the sky and he'd say, Hey Nick. He said, this is too nice a day to get, Play golf. He says, "Why don't you and I go fishing? We'll get these other guys started." He knew I'd have my game in shape, uh-huh. so he didn't worry about it. So we'd we'd send everybody else off, uh, uh, off playing golf, and we'd slip out the back door and go fishing. <laughs> so anyway, I started start fly fishing a little bit, and I've gotten hooked on fly fishing to where that's all I do. And I mean, if I if I want to go out here in in, in the ocean here, I would go out and I'd, I'd, I'd probably I would use a a teaser type thing and. And fly fish to the to the sailfish, sure, which I've done. And uh, uh, but most of the time I go to the Bahamas. most of the time I'm bone fishing or permit fishing or tarpon fishing or which down in the Keys. And because to me that's again as a sport, it's it's a form of hunting, because you really got to go find the fish. You got know, to find find you know you get a reason why they're there. Whether it's the moon or the tide or uh, the the wind or the temperature. Or, all things are factors that, that are fun to figure out so I enjoy talking about this and I, mean, I f- enjoy finding people who like to talk about that kind of stuff sure and and of course obviously with 22 grandkids we talk about grandkids. and we get talking about uh we get talk about the kids who are playing, playing sports in college or sports in high school and and Nick of course playing f- football in the, in the NFL uh and uh you know it's a no shortage I don't have plenty plenty of topics to talk about and, uh, rarely actually does golf become part of the topic.
0: Yeah. Interesting. Well, there's a, there's a big tournament coming up in a couple months. Obviously you're heading down to, I guess, a national again. I tons of questions for that, but I wanted to ask you one about the champions dinner. So this started in 52 with Hogan and I believe your first master's win was in 63. So your first master's dinner would be 64 as the host you know, you're 24 years old at the time at your first Masters dinner, and you're you're in this room with these greats, and you know Hogan, Nelson, and Snead. I guess they're in their early 50s. Was it just a an casual annual get together, or did that time that you got to spend with them did that help you in your career?
1: I honestly don't remember. Okay, but the uh, the Masters dinner is a nice tradition. Yeah. And uh, Ben used to we get a little locket that they give us, yeah. and Ben presented that to me. And uh, and you make a little bit of talk and say, you know, thank you and blah, blah, blah. But what I enjoyed about the Masters dinner more than anything else is that we'd always had sort of a talk around and everybody talked and everybody said a little something. We talked about it. and we had Cliff Roberts there. Hey, Mr. Roberts, the, the Greens are such and such this year. They weren't different than last year. Why might that be? And of course, Cliff would, Cliff would never answer the question. He just <laughs> while well, they're the same as they were, they've always done But I mean, <laughs> but you know, it was it was it was always it was always fun, and we get a lot of perspective about what everybody thought. I mean, Claude Harmon was always talking about how the bunkers had or were now all in play. Playing why why are the bunkers now in play? I said, well, you know he. When when he didn't figure out that he had it shorter. Shorter, okay. I mean, I mean, mean, hello. (laughs) And, uh, but uh, I got a big kick out of all that stuff, but I I really enjoyed it. And today, now, I don't know how many Masters champions we have, but we have a, I don't know, I suppose, maybe 30-some, I don't know what there is. Sounds about right, yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, virtually every one of them come, occasionally one or two might not be well or something, and they, they won't make it, but Virtually everyone comes and uh uh it's a great uh it's a great feeling to sit there and talk with uh, uh, well, uh Bob Golby or a, uh, up until last year, Doug Ford. Doug Ford, and, yeah. Uh you know, all the guys there, and then some of the young guys there's kind of finding split, their
0: finding their way, aren't they're they? They're finding
1: their way. And it's it's a it's a very, very nice event and very it's a nice thing I enjoy attending every year.
0: Who uh, who are the best storytellers you've run across in your in your career? You've told great stories about you know you just mentioned your your second place at Phoenix in '62, how Arnold kind of encouraged you to make that that last birdie to yeah. secure second place, and you know Bob Jones and and just all all these different great stories you've told. Who are some of the storytellers where if you saw someone maybe in the in the locker room or in the grill room kind of holding court, you're like, yeah, let me let me listen to this i might uh, might be an interesting one
1: i don't know i'm not sure who would be the best storytellers i mean sam was uh steed was uh, he, he always had the worst jokes <laughs> and he always closed the master's dinner with with one of his stories it was <coughs> they were <was> so raunchy <laughs> and you sit there and, and i remember all the look on byron's face every year when sam would tell one of these stories it was like oh we gotta get it over with sam so we can end the dinner you know and uh then we'd have uh I uh, like I said, Golby was a pretty good storyteller. And uh, Gary Player is actually pretty is a good storyteller. For years, I've set, uh, I set, I set one side. Tiger sat on one side of me. Arnold sat on the other side. And now Watson's moved in. Watson was the next seat over. Sure. Now Watson's moved in next to me. And Raymond sits on the other side of him. And Tiger sits next to me. And and Mark O'Meara sits on the other side of Tiger. And, you know, we've, we've been that way for years. Yeah. And we, we, we tell our stories and talk and so forth. Uh, But oddly, oddly enough, I don't think that the guys, uh, most of my stories end up being told with people that are not on the tour rather than people that are on the tour.
0: Sure. You mentioned earlier that a lot of the young pros are coming to you for advice or having questions. And I'm just curious, what are maybe some of the things that are, that the today's pros are coming to you on? Maybe not the, actual specifics with each other well, player, but, but like a theme. Like, I'm just curious, like, is there something that golf fans may think that that's not an issue for that player or they're coming to you on, or maybe something that you're surprised they're coming to you on? Just maybe a general well, theme. you
1: know, I've had, I had two of them come to me about how to play Augusta, okay. And they both won the tournament that, that year. So I was kind of proud of that. Well, that was Trevor Elman, Elman and, uh, Schwartzel. Yeah. Cheryl Sure. Schwartzel. Yeah. They both asked me how to play the golf course. And so forth. And, uh, that I have had, uh, I and mean, Patrick Cantley came to me at Mirfield a couple of years ago and asked me how to play Mirfield and we talked about it. And then he ends up winning Mirfield two years later. You know, maybe i imparted some kind of wisdom to him, but uh, I think it's Augusta's a golf course. It's uh, you got to realize that Augusta, the center of the green never hurts you at Augusta, there's only two holes at Augusta that uh. Um, the center of the green doesn't actually work real well. That's uh, um, the second hole. The center of the green is a ridge. Right. And uh, they're not any other way. Well, in the, in the 18th green, it's kind of either, either the front or the back. But, uh, but the center of the green throughout, I guess, for the most part, is is always a pretty good birdie putt. And I always sort of hit hit it at the center of the green and fudged just slightly towards where the pin was. I mean, the first hole is a perfect example. Put the pin four different places. They put it in front left, middle right, back right, and back left. You put the ball in the middle of the green there, you never have more than a 25-foot putt. Sure. If you fudge it just a little bit successfully, you're still in that bowl, but you never have a long putt. And you can go right through the golf course and, and do that. I mean, like the third hole, you never want to hit the ball left of the middle of the green. It's just too small. I mean, the ball may hit there and spin down to there, mm-hmm. but you shouldn't hit it there. You can put it in the middle of green, Put the middle of green at, at, at three, you're going to be even, even your pins, the one or two pin places on the left are not going to be very far. And then the other two pin placements are uphill putts. And so it's, you know, you, you look at a guess that goes through the greens. I mean, even the fourth hole, if you just make sure you carry the bunker, you put it in the middle of the green if You figure out where the four pin placements are, There's one right, one middle back, one left back, and one front left. You got to pretty put it all three of them, mm-hmm. or all four of them. So you go through a gust, it works that way. And uh, the same with five, you go back into the same exact thing. And most of the holes, other go, oh, number six is not necessarily that way. But, but number six in middle of green isn't that all that bad because you get two of the times you're all right, but two of the times up with the top wrench. So what? It's not a big deal. You're not going to, you know, you're going to two put it most of the time. But anyway, that's what the golf course is. And so we talked about that. And, and uh, I get a lot of them come to me with, uh, very rarely is anything about swing because they've all got their own teachers right. and I don't want to interfere with their teachers and so forth. And, but occasionally I sit there and, and somebody else sit there and, and I, from a consistency standpoint, I've got one thing that I want you to take back to your teacher to, to talk to him about. And uh, you know, some if I see something that is a flaw in their swing. And I think that, you know, to me, once you turn pro and you and you're reasonably successful, that doesn't mean you're gonna to continue to be successful if you don't get better. And I think that the, I've seen I've seen I've seen a couple of guys I've seen come on tour who won right away and they never got any better. And they finished their career and I just had one or two wins and they were all right at the start and it was history. Yeah. But you got, it's a, it's a continual learning process and evolution. And you, you've got to, you've got to continue to try to get better. All you got to continue to climb that mountain. And that's what that's sort of impressive upon the kids. When I try to.
0: I was going to ask you about the distance report, at the USGA just at, you know, golf fans may be looking at the, the distance issue with, Oh, they're going to take away my, you know, 400 CC driver and I'm not gonna be able to hit it as far. From an architectural standpoint, how important is it to kind of bring things back a little bit or at least stop the progress?
1: Well, in that report, you'll see that the golf ball from about 1900 on has continually gone further. Right. And not necessarily all the golf ball. It's equipment, golfers, swing techniques. And and they, they saw no reason why over the next hundred years it wouldn't continue to do so. And, you know, I think that, I mean, obviously it's something I've been preaching for about 40 years. And yet, uh, and Bob Jones, when he quit playing golf in 1930, said the biggest problem we're going to have in the game of golf is how far the golf ball goes. And I'm pleased that they're gone back and have finally come to the conclusion that it was right. That I was right. <laughs> and a lot of other people were right. Right. But the, the, the whole issue is, the whole thing is that I applaud them for actually doing it. I mean, they've talked about it, but now they're actually going to do something about it. It'll take them a year or so before they get it all done, but uh, they've collected all the data to support everything that they that they're talking about. They're doing it the right way. You know, we we just can't continue to buy keep buying more land for golf courses. We can't continue. We, water is one of our biggest problems that we have, and. Uh, we have water shortage everywhere and you can't continue to use more water. Uh, you know, you, the green movement, uh, you know, you got to watch out for the pesticides and sure. the things that you use. Uh, you've got, you've got, you've got all all the things that tell you that golf needs a little bit of a revamping and brought, bringing it back in the golf ball is probably the first step. Clubs will be part of it too. Cause once they change the ball, they'll have to change clubs. And they'll grandfather it in for a period of time I'm sure uh and it's not just on not just that it's for the elite golfer uh, it's for all golfers and I mean I always look at it as uh, uh RNA went from the small ball to the large ball now that was 19 that was 50 years ago right 1970 70. roughly mm-hmm. and everybody said oh you know what are we going to do we get the we're going to lose 20, 30 yards. Well, they wanted to play a golf ball that would, would compete against the rest of the world. The pros wanted to play it. So because they felt that they were inferior golf wise. Well, once the pros start playing it in, in, in great Britain, then the amateurs wanted to play it and the amateur tournaments wanted to play it. And pretty soon all tournament golf became the large ball. And then the average golfer said, I don't want to play a ball different than what the pros of course. Are playing. So they switched over. Now that golf ball that we played back in 1970 is about the length of the golf ball we're playing today. It was 50 yards. I could hit it 50 yards further. That's a lot. Yeah. It was only a uh, six hundreds of an inch difference in, in diameter. And, you know, I think they'll, uh, the, the, what bringing the ball back will do will, will, will bring a lot of the efficiencies are the right word or the uh, uh, not, ha- not have to have more land not have to have more fertilizer, not have to have more water it'll bring it back, it'll take them, and we used to play from the large ball to the small ball in the back how long did it take us to get used to it? half a day, sure I mean it, they'll get used to that, and they'll get used to it very quickly, and they'll get used to saying, gee isn't 260 yards a big drive again? I hope that, I hope that comes. Yeah. Because I think that's what the game needs, needs to have happen. Do people enjoy hitting the ball a long way? Sure. I enjoy hitting the ball a long way. I mean, I'm age, I'm 80 years old and I'm, I'm looking for every inch I can get, (laughs) but I mean, you know, I've also gone from uh, 120 some mile in our club head speed to about to mid 80s club head speed. And so, you know, yeah, I want to, but you know, I've got cheese that I can move up on. Sure. I play up, I play up, I play most of my golf courses down about 6,000 yards. And that's because I, it's fun for me there. I mean, I I, I can play that. I, I shot a good round the other day at the Bears club for the member's a Back to with about 6,600 yards. I shot 75. And I'm sitting there and said, yeah, that's pretty good. But he went back and looked at it. I had, I had four par f- fours I couldn't reach in two. That's pretty good round when you get that's, four that's, fours you can't reach in two.
0: That's really good.
1: Yeah. yeah, played well. And, and and I just don't hit it far enough to play. But if I, if I played the 6,000 yard golf course, I could have, I could, I could play some eight irons and nine irons and seven irons and, and wedges and so forth on, on occasion. And and my, my long clubs will be maybe a hybrid. Right. And so I can enjoy doing that. See, I think the game of golf should be about enjoyment. and, uh, and also it's an enjoyment is finding your golf ball. People, people are saying, Oh boy, I tell you, this is a tough golf course. That, that was a, that cost me a dozen and a half balls today. And I'm there, said, one golf ball is all you should need. And, and if you can hit it where you can find it. Right which if you hit it shorter, you're going to find it more often.
0: Yeah, I mean, a 260-yard drive in the fairway as opposed to 285 in the trees up against a root, what's the difference? Well, and,
1: well you're not going to find the one up against the root right. half the time. And and, and, they, and they can't control the golf ball, but they have to hit it because it's so long. And so you know, I never enjoyed playing big golf courses. I enjoyed shorter golf courses. Uh, I had power when I wanted it, didn't use it unless I had to, uh, but I thought thinking my way around the golf course and playing shots was the way the game should be played. And so, uh, you know, I think, the, I think what they're doing is, is the right thing. Uh, I mean, I'd love to have seen it earlier, but that's all right. They're getting to it. And, uh, uh, I think the whole game of golf will benefit greatly when they come to the, come to their final conclusions.
0: If, golf co- if a golf course's infrastructure is not the issue or the membership is not the issue, what's one golf course that you wouldn't mind having or seeing a professional tournament being contested on that doesn't currently have one? If you forget about the infrastructure and and anything like that, but a golf course that you well, know, some well, might say, that might be interesting to see the pros play that course.
1: Well, Pine Valley's one that comes, right, okay. immediately comes to your mind. Yep. Uh, we used to play Cypress Point. We yep. don't play Cypress Point anymore. I think... Uh, Oh, uh, let's see. Uh, there are not many other ones, really. I think that... Uh, uh, Pine Valley's
0: good. That's what I was thinking. I would too. think
1: Pine Valley and, and Cypress Point yeah. are the two golf courses that are really difficult for most people to, to get on or play. And and I think that they're two very nice golf courses. And I don't think either one of them are the most difficult golf courses in the world. but yeah. They're good golf courses
0: um steve asked me to ask you this question so if you don't know want to if you know an answer it's fine but he says you got to ask jack about the party at his house after the 83 Ryder cup at pga national he said that there he saw some picture i'll probably edit this out oh, that he was said,
1: at pga national but it wasn't at my house
0: oh okay so he said he saw this picture of everyone in their pink shirt and Things were getting pretty out of hand. Things were pretty good. They are the,
1: all drenched with champagne.
0: Okay. Yeah. He mentioned, he said he had to ask, I said, I had to ask you about that. The, the celebration. I don't party. even remember yeah.
1: much about it. I said, but, uh, it was, uh, it was just a bunch of young guys who were having fun and were happy to win the Ryder Cup. Yep. And, uh, you know, the champagne was flowing. I don't think anybody drank very much of it, but it sure got all they wore over the it. top. And they wore it all. Yeah. That's exactly right. It was well, a good, it was a good fun, good fun time. I think it's great that the guys could as a they you win as a team and you celebrate as a team as you win as an individual you know you don't do all that much I mean uh not that I care but I mean 1980 I won a Baldus roll and we had Michael with us so we went to McDonald's for dinner you know I mean that's kind of you know was it was not a lot of champagne that's a
0: like, that's actually funny I I spoke for two um I spoke to Ann Walker, head coach at Stanford Women's Golf. I spoke to Lauren Ionello, head coach of Arizona Women's Golf, and I asked them, what did you do after the team won the national championship? Arizona went to McDonald's. Stanford went to Chick-fil-A. That's what they did. And then they watched the rebroadcast on the Golf Channel. Yeah, it's, that's, I mean, that's fine.
1: You know, yeah. it's, uh, I, I would rather celebrate it with my family than yeah. go out and do stupid stuff. Yeah. Uh, you know, but I mean, everybody's each to their own, whatever they like doing. Yeah.
0: I'm sure we could talk for hours, but I really appreciate the time. This has been fantastic. And uh, just turned 80, so happy belated birthday. What what are your plans for the year?
1: Well, I think that uh, my my plans for the year would be uh, I've got a few golf courses I'm working on. Uh, I've got, uh, uh, we've just started a new, what we're going to call legacy fund at Nicholas Children's Healthcare yeah. Foundation. And that legacy fund is our our goal is to try to uh, build about a 100, $100 million dollar fund. We have about uh, we find at the hospital we've got about four, four to four and a half million dollars worth of kids that come in there that they, they can't pay for their treatment, and that legacy fund that's what that'll be for. And uh, uh, but you know that and that will be a legacy. There'll be. Uh, long after Barbara and I are gone that they will still be able to take care of those kids mm-hmm. which is something I that I like. Uh, we've got the the uh, uh, children's Miracle network fund at the PGA tour called the yellow, yellow, yellow shirt campaign or play yellow campaign and uh, uh, that is uh that's another hundred million dollars we're trying to raise over five years. We've got uh we have a half a dozen events that we have, uh, uh, for the foundation, which is, which include the Honda, include Lost Tree, it includes uh, uh, the Jake, which is our honor, honor of our grandson that we lost. We have Creighton Farms, which is up in Virginia, but then we still participate and help uh, cause up called PKU. Uh, we have uh, the Four Love Tournament, uh, Let's see, the Memorial Tournament, which benefits the Nationwide Children's Hospital. So I got a lot of charity involvements and a lot of different things that we need. And we got goals to raise a lot of money. We have a lot of kids that we want to help. And uh, I don't care whether I play golf this year or not. It doesn't, there's no interest to me. <laughs> I mean, I, I play golf when I have to. Uh-huh. And that's you know, probably about a dozen times a year. And, you know, I can still get it around a little bit as long as it's not too long. Okay. And uh, uh but uh supporting Barbara to a large degree. Barbara's Barbara's uh been fantastic as it relates to the charities and my job is to support her. Uh this is her thing. She supported me all my life. Now it's my turn. So we do that and uh and then we got uh, you know twenty two grandkids growing up and the events and things that they're involved in be part of their lives and our kids are still obviously still uh, very much in, in our picture of what we do. So I got a full plate. You got
0: a full plate this year.
1: I got a full plate.
0: Well, I appreciate it. Thank you again. And uh, all the best. Have a great year.
1: Thanks, Beth. Appreciate it.
0: And there you have it. That was our special episode with Mr. Jack Nicholas. Thank you to the entire Nicholas family for helping make this episode a reality. Please follow along on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And send me your comments. I want to hear what you think about this episode. You can reach me via email. Ben at thebackoftherange.com. We will see you again next week for another episode here at the Back of the Range.